Welcome to episode 27, where you can spend some time with your vegan brethren. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Right. I like it. Good job. <laughs> okay. Good job. You're listening to Midwest Vegan Radio. We're sharing all our secrets. <laughs> We're sharing all of our secrets just for you special listeners. With your hosts, Dallas. That sounds so good. And Ryan. Pass the news. <laughs> Let's just do our regular thing. I'm Ryan. I'm Dallas. I tried to interrupt you. It didn't work. Elliot's over there. Hello. Snoring <laughs> in the house. Nice burp. Okay. Was the talking. <laughs> How are you doing on beer? Do you need some more? Uh, yeah, I could use some more. Okay. We, we have uh, Snoreen representing. Hey. And we have Dr. Mm-hmm. Professor Kimberly and Socha. Hello. Dr. Professor? You Dr. can just Professor. call me Kim. I know. I, I think we need that's to call I you usually, Dr. Kim. I usually do call you Kim. Yeah, just Kim. I want to call you Dr. Kim. You want to call me doctor during the whole... Uh, yes. Podcast. Sounds like... <laughs> Okay. I want to make no, please I don't. want to make you more pretentious than you are because you're not, and so I think it'd be funny if well, I Dallas, made you out to be Well, read the whole book might say Kim is pretentious. I don't <laughs> think so. Okay, good. So yeah, oh, the book. We mentioned the book. Yes. So that's why that's, here. that's why Dr. Kim is here. Is to talk about her new book, Women, Destruction and the Avant-Garde: A Paradigm for Animal Liberation. Yes. Which Already kind of gives you a sense of how smart this book is. Just the tongue-twisting title. Oh. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just read that and think, whoa. It's that sounds That sounds really smart. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it took me about, I don't know, 85 pages to get into the swing of smart, because that's just not okay. my natural... State of mind. <laughs> it oh, that's not true. It didn't take me nearly that long. I the only I don't even want to say issue that I had. Well, yeah, it was it's an okay. issue that I had. Bring it up. Um, was the um, references to different things that I didn't know Absolutely. what you're referring. Yeah. But I was still able, like, I would read because I would do like 10, 15 pages at a time, mm-hmm. and I would read a couple pages, and then once I was through a couple pages, I was really into it. And then I wasn't so concerned about the references that I didn't know about, like yeah. names of surrealist artists or different things like that. But everything was well explained. It's an interdisciplinary book. Right. It was my doctoral dissertation for English. And you know, the first chapter, is it? I get confused too. I do a lot of literary analysis, yep. but I'm also bringing in art history, art theory, um, anarchist political thought, uh, popular culture. So I get that it's kind of like waves of what? And then, okay, (laughs) yeah. And then what? Yep, that's it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. But I'm hoping all the waves lead to a shore that is animal liberation. That was was a nice way to put it. Yeah. (laughs) So we're talking to a writer. We are. So what, why did you pick this for your dissertation? Ryan, it's a very interesting story. Oh, yeah? um, I'm going to give you the short version. In um, spring 2007, during my PhD program, I took a course in critical vanguard studies, which is uh, a study of the avant-garde. And these are artistic and political movements that wanted to... (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm laughing. Elliot's opening more beer. (laughs) 
Um, the uh, artistic movements such as surrealists, futurists, cubists, who wanted to challenge the status quo. And avant-garde is, I don't, is literally means the advanced guard. Uh, groups of people who are thinking ahead of their time. And they have something to offer the world that the rest of the world cannot see yet. So I was in this class and I was at the same time reading about the Animal Liberation Front for the first time. And that took me into more mainstream animal rights uh, as a movement. And I thought how much the animal liberation movement, whether it's uh, rescue work or ALF, undercover stuff, how much uh, this movement, we are forerunners of culture, trying to help the world to see differently. So I said, I'm going to write this dissertation arguing that the animal liberation movement is an avant-garde in much the same way as the surrealists were. And I focus on the surrealists just because... They were sexist, and um, they had a lot to say. They wanted to change the world. They were so passionate, and they criticized everything, but they were still, still misogynists, still sexist. And I hate to say it, we all know this, that the misogyny and sexism still exists in the animal liberation movement. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's something that connects the two movements as well. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. And that does come through. Yes, in the I, book. I must, um, I know you do shout outs later, but I, I must say Carol Adams' work, as you know from reading it, laid mm -hmm. the foundation uh, for what I tried to build on in this text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about her in different episodes I'm sure as well. She's, it's hard for her not to come up. She's mm -hmm. brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant woman. Yeah. So, yes. Well, I guess there were, as I went through the book, I had a couple of different... Um, places where I, wa I was wondering if I just wanted to hear um, hear you talk about it in, in a more candid way. Okay. Because s sometimes something would pop out and I'd say, gosh, I want to know more about that. But it, there wasn't more about it because mm -hmm. it didn't, it didn't fit in that section. Right. Um, and also one of the reasons that I really love podcasts is because I think that just natural conversation is a fantastic no context for me to absorb new information or I've, I've, I don't know. And I love it. Me. I haven't had a chance to talk mm -hmm. about this book with anyone really since my dissertation. Defense. Okay, so cool. I casual conversation. So we're your first interview. Yes. Yay. That's cool. Woo. All right. Um, so, okay. One of the things that you were talking about is about, I guess, the transformation of an individual into a thing. Right. Okay. So, and I'm just only going to focus on this without trying to pull from all the different references that got you there. I'm just going to talk sure, around sure. that. So can you give me a page number? Yes, now? it's 111. And so one of the things um, you have in here that I really thought was fan fascinating was cows begin as whole beings who notice they are alive. They have eyes, eyelashes, mouths, noses, torsos, legs, hooves, tails, etc. But they wind up as burgers and steaks, cooked, seasoned, and served, foreign in every way to the flesh. And I wanted to know what the quotes, the foreign in every way to the flesh, 
it, means to you. It is actually, if you look right at the top of page 111, it's a citation that I borrowed from uh, Kate Millay, or I think that's how you say her last name, where she is talking about, I integrate the story of Sylvia Likens into this book. Can you should probably talk okay, about very, what that is. Which was horrifying. Horrifying. Just a forewarning. Horrible. It was horrible. So just... <laughs> Just like a warning to folks uh, out there, like what you're about to hear about can be shocking. And we yes. know we talk about animal stuff all the time that's shocking and horrific. I don't know what this is. But I'm I'm just kind of letting anybody know who, just be forewarned. Yes. So this will be new to me too. So we'll be going yes. through this together, whatever this is that we're about to hear. Okay. Yeah. Um, I frame this chapter with a, about... Uh, this chapter is Avant-Garde Women Writers and Destruction in the Flesh with the story of Sylvia Likens. There are two movies made about this in the last few years. One is an American crime. One is called The Girl Next Door, which is not the one. Not the no, porn star the, girl. Yeah, a different one. Eek. And uh, Kate Millay, who was a, um, she's still around, a very popular writer in the uh, 70s, a feminist writer. Uh, she did sexual politics wrote about this story, and then these movies came out. Sylvia Likens, I will give the short version, was, um, I believe, in the late 60s in Indiana. She and her little sister were left with a woman uh, named Gertrude Banishevsky. Time out, how old were they? When you say little sister, um, Sylvia like was little about little 16. Okay. Her sister Jenny was maybe about 12 or 13. Okay. Uh, Gertrude was 37, and I remember that because when I was kind of, this was going to publication, I'm like, wow, I'm 37. <laughs> um, and this woman, she had a number of children, about seven ranging from, so Gertrude had children ranging from about seven, 17 down to one years old. Different fathers, destitute, very poor. Sylvia and Jenny went to live with her because they're, parents were carnival workers and they were going to pay Gertrude money to watch. And basically over the course of a few months, there's also a true, uh, true text account of the story. Um, they, uh, Gertrude and her children and the neighborhood children systematically tortured this young girl to death. And the extent of torture I can, I won't get into was the most brutal things you can imagine. She became their outlet for whatever rage they had. She was, you know, pummeled, mutilated. Eventually she died. And um, the youngest, uh, some of the children weren't, you know, didn't go to jail. The older ones only went to jail for a couple years, and then eventually Gertrude Banaszewski was um, let out of prison. And people in the neighborhood knew this was happening, but they would never, you know, they didn't report it or anything like that. And there is some graphic descriptions in the book, again, which I'm not going to get into. And one of the things that Kate Millay had said about Sylvia is that she became um, something put out in plastic wrappers, which I think of as, you know, meat, mm -hmm. foreign in every way to the flesh. And in a book that tries to make, continue to make those correlations between uh, women and animals, lack of agency in this culture, 
I just said that's exactly what we do to other living creatures. They become foreign in every way to the flesh. Um, there's another part of the book where I, I quote a serial killer named Edmund Kemper who says, this is a paraphrase of the quote, there's a lot left to a woman's body when the head is gone. And I compare that to um, yeah. American culture. There's a lot left to an animal's body when the head is gone. And that's usually what we, other cultures will keep the head on, but we don't want to see that. Yeah. So there's some true crime intermingled in, into this. And that's where I went with, that's where I was going with. But I don't know, I still don't understand the foreign in every way to the flesh. What does that mean? Maybe it's not so much what you mean by that, but what does that, what does that mean? What, is, what it means to me is, um, I'm thinking of Carol Adams' terms of the thingification of being. So we sit here and we're flesh. Right what these non-human animals become, which so I'd, I'll probably just use the term animals um, so I don't keep saying non-human animals. It's foreign to the full beings, the beings of flesh with eyes and eyelashes and nostrils. Okay. We go through, our culture goes through great pains to make them foreign to who they are when they are in whole bodies. Mm -hmm. Okay, yep. Well, and that, I guess that ties in really well with the next thing that just stood out to me um, that I thought was a really unique and brilliant way of putting this is um, you say an animal's flesh becomes infinitely more valuable once it is dead. And right. the it's really interesting to me because, and I had never really thought about, I never really put it together in that way before, but um, when I had participated in the first open rescue team in mm -hmm. the United States, we went in um, and removed, we rescued some hens from egg laying facilities and we'd offered to reimburse the company for the monetary value of the hens, mm -hmm. which was negligible. They were like less than a dollar a piece alive, mm -hmm. you know, in, in terms of their monetary value in the corporation's eyes. But once they're killed, they're worth more than that because they show up in the grocery stores, mm -hmm. you know, eight dollars, and they're more. And so it's it's amazing, like that anybody could be, and it happens all the time. But like the idea that you would be more valuable, you know, dead, dead than alive, is sick. And but it happens to every animal, every you know, not every animal, but I mean. Billions and billions every year. Absolutely. That happens to people too, though. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you said that. I, if I could just make another quick correlation. Later in the book, I talk about a performance artist named Coco Fusco. And she has a play. Um, which one is it? Well, anyway, I think it's Better Yet When Dead. I'm forgetting the exact title. But she has a play that talks about this true uh, story of an artist who went to um, Tijuana, Mexico, because he wanted, before his, this was his work of art, before his vasectomy, he wanted to spend the last of his potent semen in the body of a dead woman. And he had to go to Tijuana, Mexico to find, uh, to procure a body and paid $80. And there's a real example of, um, a body that was disregarded in life and in death and was infinitely, infinitely more valuable when dead. 
and Coco Fusco does a lot of work uh, with, um, here's that true crime connection again. There have been at least maybe 200 to 300 women who have disappeared in Mexico. And there's a core group of activists who are trying to bring people to justice. The women are found burned and raped and no one cares about them or not enough people care. The Mexican government isn't doing enough. They don't look into it at all. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought that one story that Fusco focused on reminded me so much of non-human animals, like how much more valuable you're, you know, to be born to be slaughtered and sold. That's well, your whole purpose. That's yeah. a, that was a really interesting story. I guess what I was talking about more is that somebody's work is worth more after they're dead. Mm -hmm. So people come to fame after they've Like artists. Died, yeah. Right? yeah, that's true too. But yeah. I think your story was better than where I was going with that. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's very not the gruesome. same thing. I feel They're like not, I'm talking because about Because artists are well, being hurt. That's what the book is. <laughs> <laughs> the book is, it's called Women, Destruction, and the Avant-Garde. So yeah, it's, some... there is. I mean, and it, but that's, that's what's real, I guess. Yeah. I'm also curious, um, you tell us, you, you recount a story about a woman who lays in a coffin. That's Coco Fusco again. If you could give me a page number. 128. That might be better yet when dead. I'm, I'm blanking on the exact titles of her. Um, well, th yeah, the idea being, you know, I guess w if, if you can kind of explain the context for this, she's laying in a coffin and people walk by her and they yes. comment or don't and it changes depending on the depending on the country that she's in? Yes. Okay, so the initial play I was talking about was The Incredible Disappearing Woman. Um, the one you're talking about is when... It's like an um, installation. Yeah, Fusco, so she... So I, I make this... This won't be a, a shock to anyone that um, there's something in American culture called missing white girl syndrome, mm -hmm. where everyone gets all worked up when there's a oh. missing white girl, but if uh, African-American or Latina youth of the same age goes missing, you don't hear about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And what Fusco says is, in Latin America, there is an obsession with um, women who die young and die spectacular deaths. So you know they become saintly or something like that. So she Ava would. Ava Perón. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ava Perón, uh, Selena, Frida Kahlo. Yep, exactly. Um, so what Fusco did was lay in a coffin. She did it in Medellin, Colombia, and then in Canada. And she would have to, like, slow down her bodily mechanism somehow to make it seem like she was really dead. And people in Canada were m more hesitant to interact with her. They would just kind of walk by. And... But in Colombia, they reacted very strongly and um, they were commenting on her body, and some of it was nice. They were giving her kisses and leaving her presence. But then um, the community had turned on her when she wasn't getting paid or something for the work she was doing. And then they turned on her and basically told her, like, you're a disaster. We want you out of our country. We don't want you to... Because she wasn't reacting the way they wanted... Because uh, they were trying to talk to her, and she wouldn't talk back. They were trying to get her to speak from the coffin, which she refused to do. Um, she wouldn't give herself a voice. I, I believe this would be my interpretation when other women don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. 
So, and again, all these things I'm talking about, I go back in and I tie it into animal liberation issues. Yeah. Well, I just, in relation to that, um, the whole notion of people feeling, you know, awkward around being around somebody dead or who has a face or something, um, mm -hmm. it's, I really thought it was interesting because you compare it to uh, our own culture where you say, to look food in the eye might make us uncomfortable, so we pretend mm. our meat was born dead. Yeah. Mm. Which I think is exactly right. I mean, as an activist, trying to explain, you know, trying to remind people that the animal on your plate is an animal on your plate, you know, exactly. and was somebody at one point, and that is part of someone, um, they don't want to know that. It's like they just want to pretend that this magically appeared before them. I, I don't know, but I just, you know, pretending our meat was born dead. I thought that was a really good way of yeah. kind of explaining that delusional state yeah. that a lot of folks just want, you know, they've kind of and if I inflict could just, on themselves. From that, from Fusco's play, one of the characters says, um, these characters are working at a museum where they're exalting this um, David Horton character who, you know, did the whole thing with uh, necrophilia. And they are um, custodians, and they're finding out about what this was, um, what this installment is about. And one of the characters says, you never know, some people might feel more comfortable if they think you're dead. Because what these women are saying is no one will look at us. The people who come to this museum don't want to look at the person cleaning their bathroom. Mm -hmm. um, and I just felt like, yeah, I think people feel more comfortable thinking that meat is just somehow there. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's no history. Yes. There's no, cre I don't know. Creation is a weird word to use when you're talking about killing and dismembering. Yeah. I guess it's not... But, um, yeah, like there was no, there was nothing that led up to this. And there's a great there's quote. There's no consequences. Uh, it's not by me, so I'm mm -hmm. not patting myself on the back. There's a great quote by Roland Barthes in the book where he says, when you remove the history from anything, it becomes meaningless. Mm -hmm. And um, I just thought that's the meat industry where we remove history. Yeah. And that's how these women felt as well. So I thought Fusco... I mean, I do a lot of critiquing of certain female performance artists who just reinforce, um, I believe, reinforce their own oppression. But I think artists such as Coco Fusco and Carolee Schneeman have done something a little different, especially Fusco. Yeah. So what, tell us about something where you think women are reinforcing their own oppression. Um, well, I compare it to... Um, are you talking like Pamela Anderson, PETA type Well, stuff? I do a comparison between performance artists of the avant-garde and then PETA campaigns. Okay. So let me give you an example. There's a performance artist, and I don't know where this is. Okay, kind of around page 14141. There's a performance artist named Elkie Christofek. Um Again, I might be saying her name incorrectly, and I apologize if she's listening. <laughs> but she did a performance piece where she laid out on an open stage, and people would just come by, and she had her um, genital openings, her vagina and her anus, 
stuffed with a dildo and a knife. I don't know what was where. Or she would um, masturbate in front of people with a blanket over her eyes. And um, people could just come by and watch, and there are male guards protecting her. And there's a, a Christine Stiles is a avant-garde critic, and she said, she asks the question, and again, I'm paraphrasing, are these women gaining control of their sexuality, or are they simply reinforcing a role that they've already been forced into by men? Mm -hmm. So what I then do is ask the same question, which has been done, of course, by Carol Adams and other um, feminist writers, but I try to do a comparison with the avant-garde and say, um, is uh, PETA is, I think, much less critical. They have one goal in mind, and I think that's part of the, the part of the purpose of this book was for it to be interdisciplinary and say, as animal rights activists, we have to look at the world holistically. We can't segment animal liberation from the rest of the world. So, I look at certain certain aspects of uh, certain PETA campaigns. You know, women masturbating with vegetables or <laughs> Just getting naked and it's saying, aren't you just saying, you're just shuffling around oppressions. You're not doing anything. You're sacrificing one animal for another. And when your goal is only to get publicity, you know, I mean, I could. Well, it's like you, I think you talked about the, that, that. The mostly naked woman is really common. Like in terms it's not of even using, yeah. it's not shocking. So, I mean. The, the naked woman selling, selling beer is the naked woman in mm -hmm. porn is the naked woman on a PETA ad. Yeah. Like, you know, that, and you talked about the, the text and the, how large the text was. Exactly. Um, and yeah. how, you know, like the woman in the sexualized, you know, position is taking up most of the space. And then there's large text with some kind of, I don't know, suggestive Have a text. Heart. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know... Very, very small. The smallest font on the thing says, you know, order a veg starter kit. <laughs> it's like no, even little. worse, it says go vegetarian. Oh, go vegetarian. Yeah. So, <laughs> which, yeah, again, so is another At least say go vegan, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I, yeah, I mean, I think that the idea being, like, people, they're, they're used to seeing that, and that's... They don't even see beyond. It's not, it doesn't matter yeah. what it's It's for. a Maxim magazine cover. And in that one particular one you're talking about is Tracy Bingham, who is a woman of color. And I get into a little bit of, you know, uh, Patricia Hill Collins and Bell Hooks and A. Breeze Harper. They talk about this, that, you know, this, the the black woman's body has been commodified more so than other, I mean, actually sold, you know, mm -hmm. and... For PETA to reinforce this, it's just like a reinforcement of, you know, what led to slavery in the first place. Yeah. Well, um, again, I mean, that I think that this is another line that can be applied to both women and animals mm -hmm. um, in terms of making that connection. Um, one of the other things that I really liked was... Um, there's a quote on page 134 that says their bodies are desired, but their beings are ignored. And it's like, I, I really appreciate oh, that you yeah. found so many different ways to say essentially, you know, essentially make the same point, but different, really, you know, beautifully eloquent mm -hmm. ways to continue to bring that back about that. These are individuals, but 
Yeah. You know, both for women and, um, I don't know, and animals and any other Where? oppressed group. Can you say page, that again? Yeah, page 134. And um, it's, she's talking about um, third world workers, women, animals. Their bodies are desired, but their beings are ignored. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as I go through here, I'm looking for, I should know my book better, but um, <laughs> there, actually, I think I might know where it is. Okay, here, uh, it's on page 43. Um, I don't speak French, so excuse me. Um, <laughs> Ryan, maybe you can correct me. Or uh, Leslie can correct you. Ferdinand Alquier. Oh, God, I'm sure I just really messed that up. But anyway, he said um, mm -hmm. he was a French philosopher. And he said, for desire is violence, it transforms others into means. And that was my inspiration for that citation that, um, that Dallas just gave. Their bodies are de desired, but their beings are ignored. You know, to, and that's what PETA does. I mean, yeah, I'm picking on PETA. You elicit desire, but it's almost like, and then I, 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 I quote the Marquis de Sade, you could look him up on Wikipedia if you don't know who he is. He was loved by the Surrealists, and he was a raper of women. He was violent towards women. He eventually, um, you know, was went to jail, but for years and years he would torment women. And he had this saying that desire is lessened when shared. And I feel like that just... It, to me, it describes, um, I think how I saw that was, it describes hunting to me. This desire to, um, you know, a desire for something so much, but you must actually hate what it is you desire. Hmm. Yeah. Because you're ignoring the being. Right. You know, which is why I never understood, and I don't know, I guess it doesn't matter if I'm saying controversial things. I grew up with uh, my cousins. They loved dogs. They loved animals so much, but they were hunters. And I remember as a kid, never being able to understand how can you love animals, but you have this desire to go out and kill them. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty twisted state of affairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think... Um, let me see... There's also, um, and you're talking about Carol Adams and um, violence, I guess, on page 222. Um, Adams argues, to observe that women suffer chronic violence, much like animals, does not mean that women are quote-unquote mm. victims, but that we must anticipate that we will be victimized because we are women. The violence we suffer from is agential, that is, it is done by an agent, and is not embedded into femininity itself. Animals are similarly victimized, but as far as we know, they cannot rationally contemplate their victimization as can women. Thus, we are bound to consider them when we look at, it, at agential violence, part of which is the demand that women respond to, com that women respond composedly and rationally to their cultural oppression. For to do otherwise is to be, to be declared irrational and or hysterical, and then to be dismissed. And, you know, I guess I, I don't even understand all of what I just read, but... I could tell you what I was saying. But you can but... certainly tell me what, I, what you were saying, but I guess the thing that, that jumped out at me about that mm -hmm. is, first, 
Um, you talk a little bit about the rash, you know, being that a lot of times there is this argument within animal rights circles that we need to be very reason based mm -hmm. and rational when we are arguing for animal liberation and that if we allow ourselves to be too emotional about it, then people will dismiss us because mm -hmm. we are not, because mm -hmm. we're not being reasonable, you know, right. or, you know, but the other thing too, that jumps out at me about this is, um, about the sexism and misogyny within the animal liberation right. movement that as a woman, um, I've certainly experienced this where I have felt like, you know, I've, I've worked with a group of men who valued reason, you know, like sure. with a capital R, um, and rationality with a capital R and utilitarianism with a capital U, <laughs> like, like God worshiped them yeah. like that, like they are absolute commandments, you know, that we need to abide by and, and that showing any kind of emotion, particularly anger, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, is completely unacceptable. And, you know, I've been silenced, dismissed, mm -hmm. you know, ignored, moved aside, you know, and just kind of like really intentionally, I don't know, moved to the margins because that was completely unacceptable. You're going to embarrass yourself. Yeah. You're going to embarrass them. I mean, yeah. I think you and read just... that passage perfectly that, um, you know, violence is agential. And I'm arguing that part of that violence is the demand that we stifle our emotions. And there's a, a wonderful quote by Patrice Jones in here that I use quite often where she's like, feminists should be allowed to stomp and rage and be angry. I just love, I, when I read that, um, I just like, really? I'm allowed to? And yeah. uh, a lot of my critique of reason and ration, and again, the surrealists were very critical of, rational, of uh, continental rationalist philosophy, so there's another connection. But our, um, it was the feminist care ethic uh, book that Carol Adams and I think Josephine, Dom, uh, Josephine Donovan co-edited that does a lot of critique of, of um, reason and ration. And then to read recently in, um, again, I'm mispronouncing her last name, Emily Garter's book about women in the That's animal. That's not how you say her last name. What's that? That's not how you say it. I know, but I it's don't remember. Is it, I think it's Gorder. Is Gorder. it Gorder? Okay. It's like, it's G-A-A, -A, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So it's, okay. Well, she said. I don't know. <laughs> she actually, but she actually cites women saying, we want men in the front because they... Because rather than challenging the fact, I'm getting all worked up, rather than challenging the fact that um, people give men more credit by just because they're male, we should be um, critiquing it. Yeah. And you know, if someday, I don't know, I'm giving, I'm not about to cry right now, but if someday I have to give a speech or, you know do a, a, a book talk or something and, and I start crying or if I get mad at a protest and I have, mm -hmm. I've yelled at people go, yeah. going by. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to be shamed because of, because yeah. I have emotion. I think that's a way of keeping women oppressed. And if we are hiding our emotional responses to the rampant abuse of non-human animals, it's going to perpetuate. Yeah, I think 
with emotion, specifically when you're when you cry, and I think men can't understand this because they don't have that experience by and large. Yeah. It's it's just a release of pent up feelings. It's just it, it's like a bodily release. It's not it's not that men don't have those same feelings, but women have a physical release that happens in the form right. of crying when the emotional when the emotions get to a certain height. Or we've been allowed to continue to do that, whereas they haven't. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, that... It is... I and think, I think that cultural. little boys, you know, they, they're able to, but at some right. point, then, I think if you know, guys they're told no. <laughs> could understand crying from it just being a release yeah. of yeah. emotion instead of it being this hysterical thing that women do. Yeah. It's just It's just a bodily manifestation of the peak of emotions. Yes, releasing. and why, I'm wondering, like, why is that? It's bad because we allow it to be bad. Yeah, and it's it's well, cultural. And I agree with Dallas. I mean, there's a lot of studying studies being done now on boys. It used to be because of you know eating disorders and self mutilation and things like that. Uh, focus on young women. What is wrong with young women? But there's a new field of study which I am not an expert in that is studying boys and at the certain points of their lives where they're told, okay, you don't get to show emotion anymore. Yeah. You know, even and family and friends. I feel like there's so many times when we've just been in a car talking about something or we're watching a movie and when you're in a safe space with people, you just you just let it out and it feels good mm-hmm. to just emote and be okay with it. And it doesn't... I feel like if we were more honest about that and just let our feelings come out in a in an appropriate way, I don't mean to start yelling and screaming at people or to become quote-unquote irrational. But crying or a release of emotions isn't irrational. No, it's... So it's if, I think it's appropriate. If we were yeah. more tolerant of that even in ourselves and more expressive of that yeah. in ourselves and actually cry when we feel like we need to instead of holding it yeah. back. Or show anger. Well, and that's something I learned from Patrice Jones, too. Is, yeah, um, she's been very she's, influential. She's been hugely influential in this area, but... Um, now, because so many people come to me to talk about their feelings around um, discovering the extent of animal abuse in our cult, you know, mm-hmm. in the world, and they are kind of ashamed and embarrassed by how much they feel mm. around it, you know, like I, you know, and they may start crying and apologize, like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I just get so worked up, I'm so sorry," and I and say, you say, "That's the appropriate." I say response. that is the appropriate response to such violence. Why would you, know, you like feel that, like that's and not appropriate? I always validate somebody who is, you know, really getting, I don't know, let like having that release and letting themselves be in touch with the pain. That it speaks to how closed comes, off we are to our own feelings. Yeah, if we and people should if we need be to mad. apologize for feeling sad about horrific things that happen yeah. in the world. And think about that. It's such a sense, as something else Patrice Jones talks about a lot, is shame. We are, uh, you know, it, it's true with men too, because maybe they're not allowed to show, show emotion either, but we have been shamed, are very like, it's not that I'm not speaking for all women, but I'm talking about a lot of women I've spoken to <laughs> and read about. We have been shamed um, into feeling embarrassed about our emotional responses, which we don't always have a lot of control over. We've been told, you better suck it up and you better act rational. You better act like a man. Mm -hmm. Like, that should piss people off. Well, the idea that in order to be equal to men, we have to act like them. 
Yeah, and that's yeah. a point I try to make a lot in here. Um, the three, uh, or uh, basically Mina Loy, uh, early 20th century poet, and Valerie Solanas, who shot Andy Warhol, I talk about their manifestos. Both of them were saying female, and you know, the emancipation of women does not come with trying to acquire their status in their world because they created the world. And that's where the destruction comes in. I have a whole section on destruction. Dallas, don't you have a... I thought that you said before there was a good quote that you said something about you can't fight with the tools that of your that they created. Oh, is or that um, Audre Lorde? The tools of Audre your master's Lord. house? Yeah. Audre um, Lorde said the master's tools will never dismantle the master's Oh, house. yeah, maybe you said that. Well, I cite... I mean, Audre Lorde mm -hmm. said it. But, but like I cite it a lot in here. In it's, yeah, it's said repeatedly. Yeah, um, but Elliot, what do you, how do you, do you feel like men <laughs> aren't allowed to emote? Do you still feel like in this current century that we're in that men aren't allowed to emote? Yeah, we don't have emotions. <laughs> well, you I know too. you don't. Well, cuz you're a I'm like a rock. Cuz you're a Sagittarius or whatever yes. you are. So you don't have emotions. But... Right. Oh yeah, we talked about that. Mhm. Mm yeah. Do you think does it make you uncomfortable when women I know that you aren't currently attached to a female, but no. does it make you uncomfortable when <laughs> females cry? Not literally. Cry? Or... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm not a Siamese twin with a female, thank you very much. Uh, no, I think that's just commonplace when you see a woman emoting this. That's You take that for at face value, I suppose. But if I see a, ma a man getting emotional, that makes me uncomfortable. Interesting. Yes. Mm. How come? I don't know. It's just uh, unusual. You don't know what to okay. do. Right. Yes. Don't know what to do. Yeah. You're right. proving you're proving our theories. Yes. <laughs> Snoring, does it make you uncomfortable to see men cry? Um not uncomfortable. I just I feel like probably there would be something that like really tragic must have happened Some, to make yeah. him cry. You know, you know, it's real. If you see a woman crying, oh, maybe it's something. She stubbed her toe. Yeah, yeah but she if had a man's a bad day. crying, right. it's super Wait, serious. But what, what, I, I wanted to get up and say something about this because, like, I feel like people, I don't, speaking from a person who was raised by men, and naturally having like this, this, when I see a woman reacting, I'm like, oh, maybe you need to give yourself time to kind of, you know, just, yeah. you know, take time, you know, digest those feelings and everything like that. But I come at it from that angle, and I'm like, there's a fine line between being irrational and being emotional, in my mm -hmm. opinion. But I wanted to kind of to discuss that, because I don't know necessarily that, like, I, I have moments where I'm, like, you know, really emotional, and I really want to express myself, but then I'm like, okay, maybe I need to give myself time. And just oh, kind of digest. Yeah. Well, that's I, fine to give, you know, mm -hmm. let yourself set set with what's going on. Oh, okay. And and I always thought that was okay, but I was just I wanted clarification. Like, is that, that like it's not just okay because to you're, be that way? Just because you're releasing emotions, though, doesn't mean you need to like start expressing them verbally and start. You know, you can you can have the release of emotions. Think about why you're feeling the way that you're feeling. What's bringing this up? Give yourself a minute and then verbally respond to it. You don't need to necessarily, oh, I'm emoting and I'm going to say the first thing that comes out of my mouth. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah and I want to, just I'm thinking of an example because we're sitting here. I remember when we watched Skin Trade, Shannon Keith's documentary, and I watched it with you guys and a bunch of people. <clears throat> and I sat here. And so many people were crying. I, but I was holding, I'm like, I don't want to embarrass myself. And when I got to my car, I let myself cry. Because I don't watch footage, I cannot 
handle it. But I was embarrassed because I thought, I, I don't know what I was, because I had the thought, well, tears are, emotion is bad. They're and weak. I know with you guys, yeah. I could have started bawling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I waited till I got in my car. So. Well, I think um, there's this section, I mean, really closely in the book to this, we're talking about um, in opposition to this rationalist in institution, a new guard of feminists led by the vegan anti-hierarchy activists I want to know who they are, um, have, taken, <laughs> have taken the stance that nothing will make them ashamed of their tears, cries, and rage, nor their love, empathy, and sympathy. Um, and then, so as Christine Stiles asks, what is inappropriate about anger? Patrice Jones might respond that there is nothing inappropriate about it, for it is acceptable to, sh to shout and stomp, and that it is not a crime to feel, to feel and express anger. And then I don't know how to pronounce, pronounce these either. As Luis Eichenbaum, Eichenbaum? Eichenbaum. And Susie Orbach confirm, I love this, to express anger is to hear oneself, to defend oneself when one has felt invaded, negated, or denied. Denying one a right to anger in any environment is a form of oppression that is habitually ignored by mainstream feminists who are trying to be taken seriously in patriarchal culture. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so... Exactly. You know, like that whole idea that denying somebody a right to be angry, which happened to me as well in an activist group mm -hmm. um, where I was, you know, there, it was mostly men. Um, it was like, it was completely unacceptable mm -hmm. for me to be angry about the way that I was being treated. Um, and I haven't, and Patrice, I mean, Patrice, I've known her for a while and she, you know, I started to get to know her when I was coming out of that um, group I'd left and she told me, I mean, we had a conversation and she's like, you know, I just get the sense that you have a lot of suppressed anger, <laughs> a lot of suppressed anger. And I'm kind of nervous to be around you. <laughs> she's like, you need to let yourself be angry and you need to learn yes. that being angry is not the end of the world and that you're going to survive it if you can be angry. And, you know, like, I didn't even know what to say about that. I was like, I'm, I'm not really angry. I mean, I'm angry at... I'm angry, I guess, you know, but I didn't really have any idea of what that would even be like because I had pushed it down so much. Well, you even, when I first met you and Kim, you may have had a similar experience and maybe even snoring too. <laughs> I mean, you seemed very closed off to oh, yeah. letting people in to being an emotional being. I mean, I feel like I have put myself out there to intentionally to make you feel comfortable with me so that you can be who you are. But, and, you know, by making myself vulnerable to make you feel comfortable. Which well, modeling. I, like which modeling. I tend to do anyway because, and sometimes that's misread because I am very open about my experiences. And so some people feel closer to me than I actually am or I feel to them. But um, you were so closed off and a lot of people felt like oh Dallas is bitchy or Dallas is whatever she doesn't like people and she doesn't want to talk to people because you were so shut off because of your experience you just built this where wall you were up. silenced in a sense oh yeah 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 I suppose I mean like I people. didn't even really realize that but um yeah like it very hard to trust people or kind of like well why bother why bother or 
you know, if I, if I try to build this relationship, it's probably going to just be really painful when, you know, eventually anyway. But I think, I mean, a betrayal, um, by other activists is yeah so hard or, you know, other vegans, I guess too, mm-hmm. is really, really hard because there's this level of expectation that, you know, may, maybe sh- there shouldn't be necessarily, but like I hold, um, activists to a higher standard because you want them yeah. to make these connections and and a lot of times too like organizations will say oh we're, they'll say that they're against any you know all of these other kinds of oppression but that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that they are when it comes right down to it and that's mm-hmm. because what it's this difficult book was about too yeah. is it happen again with the surrealists like how could you not s- why are you ignoring women mm-hmm. i mean they ignored animals too but that wasn't so, like why it, why are women in this movement, how could you not see the complicity? And when I talked about anti-hierarchy, um, that kind of goes back to some of the anarchist theory I include in the book. It's about, again, my goal in making this book interdisciplinary is saying that um, the oppression of animals is the oppression of um, other you know, human groups. It's the oppression of those in the LGBTQ community, these are all interconnected. And the other thing I was thinking real quick, when you mentioned all of that anger and the tears that were not allowed to show, I couldn't help think of the ag-gag bills, mm-hmm. trying to keep activists... Even more censored? <laughs> yeah, like we... The, what the, the anger and the emotion and the, the pain that they, are, they don't want people to see and hear from non-human animals is just an outrage. Yeah. We can sit here and discuss it, um, which is a, seems like a somewhat of a place of privilege. But I like, I know both of you agree, and probably everyone in this room agrees, that we do not like the phrase voice for the voiceless. And I even no. have a little footnote about it. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Th- no, they have voices. Right. That's we so just arrogant. don't listen. Yeah. <laughs> we're just not, or we're not allowed to hear them because people yeah. might actually see a real live being yeah. if, you, if you hear their voices. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I always try to talk about, well, I am not a voice for the voiceless. I try to help other people hear you know, mm-hmm. what these animals are clearly saying in their own language, you know, in any way that they can through their, you know, resistance and fighting and screams and, you know, trying oh, to run away and, yeah. you know, avoid people um, or the knives or the captive bolt guns or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, the the whole anger thing is a pretty big deal, yeah. I guess, um, which is one of the reasons I love martial arts, I have to say. Because I get to, yeah, I really get to work it out. Like I get to hit and kick and punch and elbow and knee, you know, (laughs) practice eye gouging and breaking necks and stuff. I remember when I practiced with you and there was a particular incident going on with you and I just kept saying this person's name over and over again. Uh I was practicing with you to get you to hit harder. Yeah. Um, It's a real, I mean, that's, it's been a really good discovery for me. And also, I mean, I suppose the yoga thing too, like the breathing, I mean, that's, that's Mm -hmm. nice, but... Um, so let's see, I guess the, the very last thing that I have anyway, and we can keep going, but, um, I thought it was really just kind of a cool thing. Like, uh, when doing outreach with people or people saying, oh, I could never give up cheese or, but you know, meat tastes so good. 
um, I, I guess there is a time and a place for this line, but I really loved it's on the very last page. And you talk about, um, the animal liberation movement say, you know, talk, uh, willingness to give up pleasure that comes from pain. Mm-hmm. And, um, you say, cause the animal liberation in regards to the animal liberation movement, they know that once you see things differently, the pleasure one gets from consuming animals disappears anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. You know, which yeah. is such a, it's a, such a true thing because like, you know, the, the couple things that I really miss from back in my day is I know that if I were, if I were to eat a Kit Kat bar, I would feel horrible. Like it yeah. wouldn't make yeah. me feel, I wouldn't even enjoy it right. because I'd feel, because so, I just feel awful. About. I always tell people I didn't give up eating meat because I didn't think it tastes good. I still think animal meat tastes good. That's why. But we, there's I'm, a reason so many people <laughs> eat it, you know. I'm, and there's but I'm not going to. Too. That's why I like the Guardian products and why you don't because they're very close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I like the texture and I like the taste, but I don't think it's fair. I wouldn't want someone to do that to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not gonna pay someone else to do that to somebody else. And yeah, but I might I might use that. One of the um, foundational statements I make in this, what I say is those who want to change the world have to be willing to give up what they enjoy of that world. There's a lot of things that I want to change other, other than the animal issues. And, you know, right. I'm anti-capitalist. Yeah. But I love, like, the trappings. Shopping? Of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I like buying new things. It makes me happy. Um, I have a 37-inch TV. You know, and it's this challenge that uh, maybe it stops being a challenge. There was a time in my life when I thought I could never give up cheese. Like, that's not possible. But I really think that for all activists, we have to be willing to give up what we enjoy of the world we critique. Mm -hmm. Because we do. We do find pleasure in, in a lot of these things. Yep. Very much. Is there anything else? That's all I got. Elliot Snoreen, do you got anything on this book? Have you read it Did yet? You, I, I have not, but no. I, oh, I really know. want I to now. This do you feel good. like you're, what you wanted to bring up was answered or addressed? Oh, definitely. I'm going to be getting some free copies that will be, um, that, will, that I'm donating to the Animal Rights Coalition because the book is, um, it, was not, it is not cheap, depending on how wealthy you are. So I want to donate them, and then they can also um, they, they can, can sell set them any for price, them. right? Yeah, to make it more for more accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and eventually they'll be sold for like a dollar, probably on Amazon. You might have to wait a few years, but. And, and I, what is your ranking on Amazon right now? My ranking, I think last time I checked, is I'm the one millionth. Seven hundred and seventy thousandth, nine hundred and eighty-sixth bestseller. <laughs> so, coming for you, John Grisham. <laughs> That's right, Stephen King, James. I'm the James Patterson of avant-garde animal liberation studies. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. All right, let's do our product review. Let's do it. Product review. Product review. We're gonna do a product review. Yeah. and our product review is it's kim's book kim's book that we just spent a bunch of time talking about so you get a sense of what it's about um 
And so much more. And so much, <laughs> there is so much more, really. Um, and I think, like, like was said before, um, if you enjoy Carol Adams' work, I think that this is in the same yes. vein. I interviewed same genre. For, for the I mean, because yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle of a, an anthology, I guess, like a collection of essays that she wrote. And <laughs> I, I stopped her collection of essays, read Kim's book, and then went back to her collection of essays. And I'm like, oh. There's like no gear changes. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and I acknowledge I that. I, yeah, I acknowledge him. Like this is, it's Carol Adams. Is yeah. So I mean, and a lot of people love her stuff, and right, rightly so. Um, I wanna, so academics, I no problem. I um, I had a really tough time, although I thought it was a good book with Bob Torres's Making a Killing, because I felt like it was a little too academic. And in Dr. Kim's book, other than um, the references to different cultural things that I am not familiar with. The book reads really easily. It's just good, these good. references to things that I'm not familiar with. Of which, course. you know, which like citations the... and things like that. Yeah. So you cite where something's coming from and I've not heard of that surrealist or that movie. I didn't I'm like Cubist, what? Yeah. But I don't know the about book that. Itself <laughs> reads very easily. Thank you. So yes. I think that it's even though it seems, it seems like it might be very complex and difficult. I mean, Dallas read it in like a day. A week. <laughs> it took her a very short period of time to read it, so. Um, yeah, I read it in a week. So and it's Dallas not isn't good. that much smarter than me. A little bit, but not that much. <laughs> no, I don't know. About, um, <laughs> and just so people know if they did want to buy it, I'm not, any royalties I get, which are going to be minimal, so I'm not thinking of retiring. I'm donating everything, so I'm, I have no... When I so, say buy my book, I have no plans on making money. Even if it's just like they send me a check for $100 five years from now, I'm going to donate it yeah. to Animal. Because you have to do things. Um, you have to sell 400 copies, right? Yes. Before you... Before I get... Um, my mom's already bought 300 copies. No, I'm uh, No. <laughs> she did buy two, though. So the book is very expensive, but it's... Well it's eighty one dollars it. on Amazon. We should say eighty one dollars. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if anybody out there is a professor, oh, it please. would be a great book great to book. use. In what kind of class? Uh, feminism class, uh, cultural studies class. I do a whole thing on Beverly Hills Chihuahua, which we didn't even get a chance to talk oh. about. Oh, that's true. Um, which we is could, fun. You could bring it up. Uh, We're still here. Um, oh, I just I critique um, the use of miniature dogs as as extensions of female desirability yeah and how you know animals are supposed or especially like little dogs are seen as just mini people and that's a misguided way to i didn't to know that them. there were like dog spas that had lifestyle management <laughs> what? capabilities in I'm beverly looking at, hills i'm looking at my my drooly beagle with a half paralyzed face and you know <laughs> crusties on his ears and I'm like dude do you need lifestyle management? <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, dogs can go and they can um, basically hang out with their peers. This is for the elite dogs of Beverly. I mean, yeah. it's like a movie star's dogs. So they can go and um, spend time with their peers, grab a gourmet meal. Grab um, a gourmet meal. Grab a gourmet meal. They even have private doctors. At They've got places. private yeah, doctors. They can have, I mean, basically what are play dates, but are kind of like, Base, like social social sessions and also the whole like doggy couture thing I didn't yeah. know how to hand that was like 
you know, clothing, doggy bridal dresses and, you know, sleepover parties. You can get dog pajamas and, um, like, Sexy dog costumes. Oh to go yeah, along. Head, I guess if you really want to. Yeah, and they um, you know, I, I, I this one I t- there's a lot of anti-capitalism critique. I do cite Bob Torres, um, and uh, you know, a lot of his the commodification of certain breeds of dogs, like yeah. oh, just yeah. like in amongst humans, like being a petite, you know, being tiny is not even the, not even petite, petite but just thin. thin. And then I make that to be tall. You want to yeah. You want to be, but then I make that correlation where well, what this fetish with small dogs? I mean, I know everything. Yeah, Yeah. or everyone except breasts. You should be really tiny and have just giant. But small pigs, small like the teacup. Yeah, like Nicole was talking about at the event. I'm sorry, it's just too good to not read. Club Beverly Hills is what the dog place is called. (laughs) Um. Complete lifestyle management for the world's most privileged dogs through the exclusive nature of this members-only country club nestled on the border of Beverly Hills and West Hollywood. The Club Beverly Hills is the perfect spot for L.A.'s most powerful dogs to socialize with like-minded peers, enjoy a jacuzzi soak, grab a gourmet meal, see their favorite, uh, see their private doctor, or fit in a quick workout. Seriously. I'm like... If looking at my dog with the drill, <laughs> I'm just thinking, really, wow, lifestyle management. If and there you are, have I mean, money there are... for that. Why aren't you giving money to some some organization that needs? Yeah, it? I, I cite an author in here who says that <sighs> the, the bizarre distribution of wealth in the Western world, so that your dogs can see their private doctor and grab a quick meal <laughs> with the other powerful dogs of Beverly Hills. <laughs> The most powerful dogs. Like, that's such a weird thing. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, there there are alpha dogs, so I guess that makes perfect sense. Mm. That there would be a... It's very weird. Anyway, oh, hierarchy. so this is still our product review. Yes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so there are funny things in their book, too. Yeah, I try to be funny sometimes. Yeah, that's good. I think you're funny all the time. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, thumbs up from VR. No problem. And it's time for the Green Challenge. It's time for the green challenge. Green challenge. Green challenge. There's no gloves. There's no swords. No white suits. Uh Uh-uh. It's just green challenge. You're just doing the earth a solid. Well, I kind of felt silly because I I picked this green challenge specifically for this episode before I finished your book. And we're passing my book around to everyone we know. That's green. (laughs) There's only one copy in circulation. Yeah. So I read the book... Um, and I picked the green challenge, kind of like a ton of, like tongue-in-cheek thing. I mean, it is a real green challenge, but um, it has it's a lint. So okay, lint on your clothing, hmm. and this is or dog or cat hair, whoever lives with you, um, that sheds. So I have four boys at home, two dogs, two cats, and they all shed. And so I, you know, like to kind of try to keep the hair on me to a minimum. And, you know, there are those uh, lint rollers, which are, like, tape on a tube that you roll, and then you peel off the thing and throw it away. Well, way back in the day, before we had disposable sticky tubes of tape to roll around, there were uh, actual brushes. Do you remember these? I have have those. Did you have one of these? Yeah. So My parents had one. I didn't understand what it was for. That I was is, like, it's a hairbrush with no bristles. Exactly, yeah. 
So it's kind of like the really short felt felty thingy, but it's not really felt because it's it's not wool. And they work really well. So yes, you can get one of these, um, and then you never have to get a disposably yeah. thing and toss it anymore. And it actually works decently. I got one for two fifty or two dollars or something at the fabric store. That's even cheaper than the disposable ones. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a it, this thing is it's cheap, <laughs> but it's not. I mean, it's sturdy. It's okay. The disposable ones are like three. But yeah, and so I I picked this one because I thought when you need to look smart. Uh, if you need somebody to take you more seriously, but maybe that is just some kind of a <clears throat> bizarre, I don't know. You can't read Kim's book if you don't look smart, but then you're playing into Yeah, aesthetics. like cultural stereotypes, yeah. basically. So then I'm like, oh, is she going to call me out on that? That maybe I'm judgmental when I see people who are covered in covered hair. In hair. That maybe they not be might not be too smart. <laughs> maybe they just don't care. Maybe they're smarter I don't know. than you. Anyway, so if you don't, if you don't want to have dog hair, or cat hair all over you all the time. I was actually thinking about that today in yoga. There was a girl wearing glasses. My first thought was, how can she see? How are her glasses not I running off glasses of her face? I wear glasses in yoga. Did they stay? I on have to take them off sometimes. I, in the hot yoga, I start sweating so much they just slide off my face. But my thought was, this girl looks so cute in her glasses. She was very petite and she had these really cute, funky glasses on. And then I thought I was having this weird thought in, like, in triangle pose that. Why is it that we associate glasses with smart people when really, if yeah, you don't no, have glasses, you can't see? So how could you be smart if you can't see? Yeah, maybe it's like <laughs> like why do we associate glasses with people being smart? I don't know. If you actually it has to be cultural, like a movie or something, you know, like The Nutty Professor or but like without soap your, opera. Do you remember like? But without so your glasses, you couldn't be smart. Maybe that's what it is. That's because I couldn't see. Because you couldn't see. But so. you remember in soap operas, the woman who was unattractive would have glasses, and then she'd take her glasses off. And, and she'd be a vixen. And let her hair down. <laughs> and let her and hair down. As I sit here with glasses and my hair up, and I want to keep Elliot at bay, so I'm just keeping <laughs> everything. I have uncontrollable urges. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I got it. Kim late. is such a sex pot. <laughs> I am. Watch out. Don't tempt me. <laughs> all right. It's all, the hair's staying up. The glasses are staying on. Uh, so, anyway, okay. So, go get one of those lint rollers. Do it. Um, that's your challenge. My challenge to you. Yes, you. I've already met that challenge because I have this. Cool. Well, use it. I will. I don't have companion animals to have to worry about that. But you have the other kind, right? I do, and I don't even know what I even have it for because okay. I don't find myself any linting. If you spend any time with me, you're going to get Susie hair on you. <laughs> I have never lint rolled myself after really? being around Susie Roo. I just, I feel like... I'm washing my clothes at some point after that, yeah, and then hair that comes off when I wash your clothes. Okay. I guess. So it's an easy one. Shout outs. Should we shout out? Yep. Shout out! Shout out! Shout out! Okay, I have two. Actually, I have four. Um, the first one is Zoe, our friend Zoe, who we run into all the time. And I shouldn't say all the time. We ran into a couple times. Zoe or Zoe? I don't, I think it, I thought she said her name was Zoe. Okay. Is it Zoe? We saw I her think at it's Zoe. Zoe. We saw her at Vegucated. Vegucated. We saw her at Mad City Vegan. Mad City Vegan. Please tell us how to say your name. It's Z O E. I thought Zoe. it was Zoe. Well, I thought that had a Y on the end. No. Well, will, you let, will you email us and correct us, please? Let us know. 
Anyway, she wants to shout out to her friend Sabrina, I can say that. <laughs> who I'm pretty sure won't hear it because she's too busy with school and work to listen to podcasts, whose New Year's resolution was to go vegan for a month. Congratulations, good luck, and keep it going. Keep it going. Do it, do it. Ooh, ooh. I heard a train when you did that. It, it's the vegan train. Get on the vegan train. Okay, cool. And Jim Wheeler. <laughs> Jim. I like his shout out. Yep. Jim's shout out is to broccoli. I love you, man. Yes. That's awesome. I love broccoli too. That's <laughs> the best shout out we've ever had. That's pretty awesome. Yay, broccoli. Broccoli's a man. My Broccoli's turn? A yeah, dude. go ahead and do your shout-outs. Um, I actually have three. Uh, I would be completely remiss if I did not thank the Institute for Critical Animal Studies for publishing this book My this uh, through Radopi Publishing. The series editors um, were so helpful, and they accepted my proposal. Um, <laughs> Helena Peterson and Vasil Stanescu helped me. There were some reviewers as well who remained nameless. I never knew who they were, but they helped me make this book something, um, to help it make it what it is today, which I hope it's very good. <laughs> so thank you to the Institute for Critical Animal Studies. Um, there is a conference on critical animal studies, which I may be presenting at and giving a book talk. Um, it's in Buffalo at Canisius College, May 2nd to 4th. So I'm hoping I can make it there and talk more about this book and spread the word. And then the final shout out, I just want to read the final paragraph of my acknowledgments. Yep, I think it's book. great. Sure. So um, I thanked my family and um, you know my dissertation readers and things like that who are awesome. But I'd like to say final recognition is saved for those within the animal liberation movement. Both the activists with which I work at the Animal Rights Coalition in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and those I do not know but with whom I share an objective, empty cages, not bigger ones. Like the surrealists, you are brave enough to see the madness, violence, and abuse, and dedicated enough to turn what you see into compassion and love. Your acts of courage, big and small, safe and perilous, lawful and forbidden, bring an unrivaled radiance into this world. Yay. Yeah. My last two are for Peggy Mazinski. Is that how you say her last name? Close enough. And <laughs> She well, knows who she is. And Laura Foster. What up? Nothing in particular, but just what up to you guys. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It yeah. was our most supreme pleasure. Snoreen, Elliot, do you have anyone to shout out to? Um, yes, Donut Cooperative in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You guys I gotta make a get there. Vegan donut. I want to get there so. Whoop, whoop. Well. They yeah. are in the old uh, cake eater location. And what I, I really like about them one. is they did they did a couple ingredients things, and they um, because some of the ingredients are more ethically produced, they didn't sacrifice using some other you know. So Shout they out didn't, to them, delicious donuts. They didn't sacrifice okay. on. They, they didn't skimp. Oh, yeah. They didn't, they skimp, didn't skimp. skimp bad. Skimp on the quality nope. ingredients to make their donuts. And I think that's really great of them because they, they could have. Awesome. Elliot? Uh, I don't have a shout out, but I have an announcement. <gasps> uh, I am going to go uh, vegan for Lent this year. So <gasps> oh. Woohoo! When this airs, I will be in the thrusts of 
Lent. That's so awesome. Very yeah. good. So anyone who wants to join me, let's do it. Anyone who's curious, you know, interested. We will support you in that. Okay. Totally, man. As long as I can still have Grain Belt. You can. Grain Belt will be good. You can, like, do updates on the Facebook page. First yeah. day of Vegan Lent. I think it was <laughs> hearing <laughs> about my book. You yeah. just said I had. <laughs> I might have done it, yes. Sweet. Inspired. And the promise of my glasses coming off and my hair coming off. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this reason enough. Are you getting hot in here or is it just... <laughs> oh my goodness. We got uh, anything else? Um, I'm going to shout out to my friend Kelly, who I believe um, is resigning from the same dog rescue that I resigned from. Oh. Uh, Hi, Kelly. Uh, I know yeah, you. I know. Um, and, you know, I just want to say I know, I know it's a very, very difficult thing to do, um, to step down from something that's important to you and, you know, it's doing good in the world. But, um, again, like it's a good, it's good to invest in sustainability and to be able to take care of your own family. And I think, you know, there's, you're totally capable of doing amazing, wonderful things. And I love you. And that's all sweet. So Aww. yeah, she's awesome. I think that she's awesome too, even though I've never actually met her. We've only corresponded. Yeah. No, we've chatted on the phone too. She's but Irish. I, I find her to be awesome. <laughs> she I is, like talking to her on the phone. Yeah. That was a surprise for me. I know. Hearing her accent. <laughs> it's it's she's delightful. Great. She's great, great. Okay, so that's all. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.